Hi there. I'm Jen Hale Christie, and you're listening to Preach Her. This podcast is designed around the reality that many of our churches are shrinking because we haven't created a place where everyone can belong. So if you're seeing that reality in your own church, or you've experienced that and left the church or never even went, this podcast is for you. Welcome. Have you heard about our Patreon community? It is an awesome way to join me and others in this good work, whether you want to support women preachers and make sure that this work continues, or if you want to actually partner with me and have direct input, like you want to have a 30 minute phone call with me every month, or you want to join the sermon prep team, or you want to come and visit my family um, in Portland and help produce an episode. There are opportunities for you to engage at whatever level feels good for you. And everyone who's in the community gets access to our monthly letter um, delivered to your inbox at the end of every month. So click the link in the show notes and let me know what you think. Shout out to Sheila and Steve who have recently joined the community. We are in season three, which means we are making our way through the book of Acts. I like to call it the Acts of the Holy Spirit. Today we have a guest preacher and after the sermon, I encourage you to stick around and hear our conversation about life, ministry, and hope for the church. Let's hear a word. Today, Jen gave me the opportunity to talk to you about one of my favorite passages of scripture. And so I look forward to sharing with you a little bit about something that's guided my life. I want to start with a story. Several years ago, a friend of mine traded in his shiny black fancy Mustang for a car he named Phoenix. And I have to say, I'm not really a car person, but Phoenix was a pretty sweet ride. She was a beautiful car and supposedly had a fantastic engine. But Phoenix had a tiny problem. She spent a lot more time in the car shop than she did on the road. And this gave me a very interesting opportunity. You see, my friend lived not very far from where I worked, and he needed a car during the day. And my car was just going to sit in the parking lot at work. So each morning, I would get up, get ready for work, and go pick up my friend. He would drop me off at work and use my car during the day. And then when I was done with the day, he would come pick me up. I would drop him off at home. And together, we shared my little car. Well, on the days when Phoenix was in the shop. This arrangement worked quite well for the two of us. I had a friend for the short little mile on my way to work. He had a car, and together we had a grand time. We really shared what we had, and it didn't bother either of us. This isn't so different from how the early church handled their belongings. Let's take a listen to the way Luke describes the church in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. Luke writes, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and to the breaking of bread, and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together, and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings, and distributing the proceeds to all, as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together, and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Isn't that a beautiful description of what the early church must have looked like? Wouldn't it be incredible to have the opportunity to just listen in and understand what that little baby church was each day as they were starting? I can't imagine what it looked like to go from 120 believers to 3,000 in just one day. So. Come with me on this little journey, and let's see if we can understand what it must have been like to be there. First, I want you to notice that in verse 42, we're given four kind of pillars that define what the early church looked like. They were following the apostles' teaching, paying attention to fellowship, breaking bread together, which is very likely communion, and participating in the prayers something we don't often do in our churches, but that would have been the daily prayer rituals that took place in the Jewish home or the temple. 
Imagine what it would look like in our communities if we spent time devoting ourselves to the continual learning and growing in wisdom and truth. In other words, to paying close attention to the teachings of the apostles in Scripture. What would it look like if we were continually building relationships in our community? If fostering relationships among other members of the church took precedence over many of the other things that take up our day-to-day time. Many of us have the opportunity for regular recognition of communion and Jesus' death and resurrection, and I think that shapes the way that our communities look. And finally, what would it look like if we spent time praying the Psalms daily, including the Jewish traditions of prayers? This is a little insight into what the early church looked like. But that's not all. That's just the first verse. You see, in verse 44, we see something else was happening. All who believed were together and had all things in common. And in verse 45, they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. It's a little bit difficult in our world to understand what this must have looked like. It's almost like the entire church became one family and lived together and shared all that they had and took care of the people that had needs. We see a little bit of this in the Gospels. Jesus and his disciples all ate food and had money in the same pot. But there were only 12 of them. And one of them had the gift of being able to make food last or at least go a long way. We know that the church is adding 3,000 people, and yet they're continuing to focus on living as a single family. They eat together. They praise God together. They have glad and sincere hearts together. It's really important that they're going to the temple together, that they're participating as a community. Because it's this community that shines, and day by day, they're adding to their number. It's funny that community was such a big deal in the first century church, because I think it's kind of a big deal in our world. Our world is searching deeply for community. They don't even know what it looks like. Hint. Real community is very difficult to find electronically on social media. And truth be told, we have become so divided that everyone is labeled and separated to the point that we've become alienated from all but a small group of other humans. The world tells us that love is based on all of our labels matching instead of being rooted in our being image bearers of the living God. Jesus told his disciples that they would be known by their love for one another. And we see that happening in the first century church. They walk alongside one another. They do life together. They live as a family with shared experiences. And they worship God together. They face persecution together. And their bonds of friendship are forged in the deep troubles that they faced. They're much stronger than just an acquaintance on social media. They were brothers and sisters bound together by the blood of Christ. The only label that mattered was Christ follower. We usually don't get to pick our family. And even in the best families, brothers and sisters annoy one another and challenge each other. But in my family, even when my three little brothers were their most annoyingest, they were still my brothers. And nobody had a right to pick on them. Because you see, I love them no matter what. Our churches ought to be the same. Luke tells us in this passage that people were being added to the community every day. Why? Because we are created to seek community. And a community where everyone belongs, a community where people feel loved, that is incredibly attractive. Are you part of a community? Maybe you're listening today because you feel like you don't belong in the community. Maybe you're wondering whether or not you have the right labels. Or maybe someone has told you that you didn't belong. I'm here to tell you that that's not what church is about. That actually, in the first church, everyone 
got to belong. Everyone that was added to the group was part of the community and didn't matter what their labels were. Maybe you're listening because you're part of a community and you're wanting to know how to help it if it's struggling. Maybe you're listening because you enjoy the online community and are struggling with in-person or face-to-face relationships. In each of these cases, I think it's super important for us to remember that God created us to be in relationship with humans in community. And so I hope that you will find community here, but I also hope that you will seek community with fellow Christians along the way. You see, there's something important about being able to share what you have. Remember that car, Phoenix, I was just speaking about? Sometimes when we meet one another's physical needs, something else happens. My friend with a cool car, well, (laughs) when the daughter we were in the process of adopting went to live with another family, he still needed a car. And although I was deeply depressed and I didn't, I didn't want to let my friend down, we had a relationship. So I got out of bed, not because I wanted to, because I didn't, and not because I felt like it, because I didn't. I wanted to hide and cry and disappear, but because my friend needed a car and I felt some sense of obligation due to our relationship, I got there. And that silly, silly car, Phoenix, which seemed like it broke down more than it ran, became an instrument in the healing of my heart after this deep loss of the child that I had prayed for. Those few moments in the car gave me enough strength to go to work, to get out of bed, to be reminded that although I had suffered in my mind an unimaginable loss, my life still had value and I still needed to go on. Each day that I got out of bed, each day that I showed up and picked up my friend, was a little minor victory. And together, those minor victories became major victories as I tackled the healing process and and walked through that loss. The awesome thing is that I had friends who loved me in that very, very dark time. I'm not alone. There's a lot of people out there that need healing. And I believe that the church was created in part to bring healing to our world. As we seek to be the church, well, I'm wondering, what does it look like? How are we living out those four pillars of the early church? What is it that we do each week or each day to improve our understanding of the apostles' teaching? What is it that we're doing throughout the week that builds the fellowship of our community? How can we structure our time of communion or eating together so that we build on relationships? And how much do we understand or participate in the daily prayers and reading of Psalms that were common in that early church? While my goal in today's sermon is to encourage you to work on these four things, I think there's something deeper and more important that we also need to attend to. What kind of community are we building in our world? Our world needs healing. Today, we are being called to be a community that brings healing to those in need. And possibly in the same way, we will find healing for our wounds. Today, I live in a country where there are many excesses. Toys, food, clothes are all in abundance in some homes, while these same items are scarce in other homes. I routinely encounter people who have needs for medical care, food, support, just basic things that it takes to live. In our world, we have children and families who struggle to manage one meal a day, yet in our restaurants and grocery stores, we throw away unwanted food, even vegetables that have a blemish or a soft spot. What would it look like if the church was selling their goods and belongings to help those in need? Today, I live in a country where the most segregated day of the week is on Sunday, where we worship in small groups with people that look and talk and act just like us. In our world, we give ourselves license to look down on the drug addicts, the poor, the felons, 
or other outcasts in society as though we are somehow a better image bearers of God? What would it look like if the church was attending temple together and recognizing each one of us as an image bearer of the living God? Each of us have been given gifts for the building up of the body, and Jesus died for each one of us. All of our sins have been given, not just mine or yours, but every human has been redeemed by the blood of Christ. Today, I live in a country that defines people based on a donkey or an elephant. We see our differences as reasons to ridicule or dismiss one another. In our world, the color of your skin determines what access you have to education or job opportunities. Your gender determines what strengths you might have or what roles you are given to serve, regardless of your actual gifting. What would it look like if the church was breaking bread in their homes together, regardless of political affiliation, race, or gender? If our goal was to bring people into relationship with Christ by building relationships with them, regardless of their background, their sins, their history, their differences. Today, I have a challenge for you. You see, you, yes, you listening right now, you're part of the body of Christ, and you can use your gifts to bring healing to this world. And it isn't about whether or not you can or whether or not you should, but it's whether or not you will. God has called all of us to join him in bringing about peace to our world. He's called us to love not just our friends and family, but our neighbors, our enemies, and those with whom we disagree. We have got to change the way that we see people who believe differently than us. There's no way for us to make it through unless we work together. No longer can we be red or blue. No longer should we be black or white. No longer should we be male or female. But instead, we're to sell our possessions and provide for one another. We're to worship together. We're to sit at the table with one another and eat together. Will you join me at the table? Will you invite others? Will you make a point to have dinner with somebody who's different than you? Can you make a point to build bridges between people, build relationships with others, and include even the folks who seem like they're on the fringes of society? Today, we can make a difference in the country in which we live. Today, we can make a difference in the world that's around us. But most importantly, we see from the example of the first church in this passage that when we live like this, when we live together, when we don't attend to the, our differences, but instead we seek to build relationships, when we share what we have, when we worship together, when we eat together, that the Lord will add to our numbers and together we can bring healing to our world. So would you take some time and consider joining me? Because I think together we can make this a better place. Well, hello and welcome Jessica Knapp to the Preach Her podcast. Thank you so much for joining us and for preaching a word for us today. Thank you. It's been an exciting adventure. Really? Well, I I love the passage in Acts, but I didn't realize how um, how different it is to preach to an audience that you can't see and that you can't um, interact with. So it was a, it was a different experience. Yeah. And you're, you're used to um, being in front of people pretty regularly in your campus ministry role, right? Yeah. So I am really blessed because I get to preach usually twice a month. Um, it kind of depends on what, what all is happening in the campus ministry. And um, I'm super excited because last semester we had three of our, uh, female students want to preach so I gave up a lot of preaching slots to give to them and I'm I would happily give up preaching slots to to get to see more of our college students um, awesome. learn how to preach so that's awesome um I kind of jumped right in so um tell us a little bit about where you are and what you're doing um, okay don't know so I live in Tucson Arizona and I used to be a college professor and God had a sense of humor. So now I'm a campus minister and we're in the middle of a church plant, which means that I do a little bit of everything. So there's a little bit of campus ministry and we have a little youth group. So I do a little bit of youth ministry and um, we're church planting, which means I do a little bit of preaching and a lot of hanging out with people. So I like that part. 
That's great. I'm sorry if you're hearing this noise in the background. The little puppy is, um, she's, she's in the chewing um, phase, you know, which lasts forever. And she's scratching. That's okay. Floor. She's a mess. Anyway, um, yeah. So you said God had a sense of humor. You were teaching math, weren't you? Yeah. I teach math. Well, I taught math. I have a PhD in math. Yeah. I don't even know what, what phrase because I had a PhD, I have a PhD in math and I um, taught at the university level for a couple of years as an adjunct. And then I taught at the community college um, mm -hmm. and I had the opportunity to be kind of in faculty leadership there. And I really enjoyed teaching and I really didn't like um, the other pieces. Uh -huh. So it turned out that what I loved the most was mentoring students. So yeah. in 2012, I quit my job as a professor to do full-time youth ministry. Uh-huh. And then as our church continued to struggle um, in 2017, it closed its doors. And I thought, well, you know, that was a great ministry run. And my husband and I talked about what to do next. And we weren't really, we weren't really sure where God was leading us. And the campus ministry contacted me because they were housed in the church where I was at. So yeah. I'd worked with the campus minister kind of really closely, um, but they were supported by multiple churches along with other individuals. So even though the church was closing, they were still functioning yeah. and now needed some more support since um, life was going to look a little bit different. Yeah. So um, I, never saw myself as a campus minister but when I look back I'm like oh of course I'm a campus minister so it made a lot of sense to make that change yeah wow so when I met you um just a few years ago I guess that would have been uh one two two years ago maybe at Pepperdine yeah at Harbor um so you were pretty newly into that role yeah, I actually think I met you the year that our church closed and I wasn't in that role yet. I was oh, still wow. in the process of discerning what to do next. Um, and so, yeah, my, my time as a campus minister, I'm really only two and a half years in to that. Okay. All right. So, um, well, let, let's jump into talking about the sermon. Um, I love yeah. this example that you gave of the car of your um, your friend who lives lived close to you or close to your work and you know whose car was always in the shop and um, and how you connected that with kind of the experience of the early church with people just like look we're people we we have things I have something you need you know and and the the beauty of that um, tying in with a very personal story of loss and how like you know, you were doing this thing that's like pretty casual and easy. Like it wasn't a big deal to let him borrow your car. Um, but then I, I don't know kind of how the gifts came back to you um, yeah. in such a profound way. Um, then when you were, when you were really, you know, you had a need that maybe you wouldn't even be willing to speak to him um, or, right. to, or to somebody, but that, you know, just the simple, the simple act of like still showing up, um, in that way for each other as as casual friends um was enough to help pull you through a really dark time yeah it's interesting because you know i grew up in a family where like my parents were forever you know lending somebody a car having somebody live with us or people would come over and my mom would just say oh you know you know my house is your house just you know if you need something look through the cupboards and find it yeah. and um so that was a very natural place for me to be. It was very um, familiar when mm -hmm. um, when my friend was like, "Yeah, so I'm supposed to be." He he was a youth minister, and um, and we actually shared kids because it was a divorced family, and the mom went to my church and the dad went to his church, and so that's how we met. Is I I called him up and said, "Can we like not schedule events over each other because I don't ever want this family to not." To have to pick between two churches yeah. and he was like well yeah or we could just schedule events together so it doesn't matter whether they're with their mom or their dad that they can always come and I was like sure awesome so that sort of started that friendship and yeah and one of them was a football player and so he would go um on certain days of the week and go have lunch at the high school with 
like half the football team. And um, I thought that was a beautiful ministry and I totally wanted to be very supportive of that. But you need a car to get there. So, you know, you can't really walk from the church to the high school, it was a long ways, but worse than that, like you're pretty uncool if you show up walking as a youth minister. So um, when, you know, we called and it was like, Phoenix is in the shop, can I just borrow your car? And I was like, oh yeah, sure. You know, it just didn't, it didn't phase me. And and then it happened again and sort of again. And then pretty soon it was kind of a running joke. Hey, is Phoenix running or not today? Like, do you need me to come pick you up? And um, I think that our friendship grew from those, you know, few minutes in the car here and there. And yeah. he'd call and say, I'm done. Are, are you finished teaching? I'm like, oh, I've got students or grading, you know, just use the car until I'm ready. I'll call you, whatever. Yeah. And, um, and then never in my wildest imaginations did I think that, I would be struggling with grief or loss because that situation was a lot of pieces. We had a student in our youth group and her mom had died when she was little and then her dad died unexpectedly and all of a sudden she came to live with us. And, um, you know, like there was lots and lots of excitement about that and lots and lots of work and grief and processing just her loss. And then unfortunately she got a lot of people that told her, you know, you don't have to live with them. If they're not making you happy, you can go live with your boyfriend, which is a horrible idea. It was a, you know, as a parent, you think this is the worst possible advice anybody could give your student. Um, but as a youth minister who's caring about her, you know, grieving and has an understanding of her loss and all sorts of things, I was just like, that's, that's wrong. Like somebody should not give that advice, but they did. And the courts upheld that in the state of Arizona, at the age of 16, you get to choose. It doesn't matter what your dad's will said. It doesn't matter that there's caring, loving people who could help you get to college. It doesn't matter. And so she walked out of our house and my world came crashing down because I, I didn't understand how I had these, you know, I had this vision of what I wanted. She wanted to go to Pepperdine. So we were like saving for college, you know, and I thought how cool would it be that she could go and have these experiences and her heart could be healed. And, um, you know, loss is a lot of things, but one thing it is, is like the dreams and expectations you have die. And this kid didn't die. She's in fact, I'm, I'm still in contact with her minimally, but, but in her, there was a lot of death. And I, I don't even think I, I think it took me many years to realize um, how much that hurt and how deeply depressed I was. So I kind of went on autopilot, you know? Yeah. Um, Travis needs a car. I got to get up and get out of bed and get to work because he's going to borrow the car, you know? Yeah. And, I, and, and we never talked about it specifically, especially not the first few weeks. It was just like, okay, just, just move, you know, just function. And over time, you know, he would, I would show up and he'd be like, would you like some Hershey's Kisses and some hot chocolate for work? And I thought, oh, you know me. Yes, I really need that. (laughs) You know, and and then I would, you know, come the next week, he was like, do you need more Hershey's Kisses and chocolate? (laughs) (laughs) And um, we made it through. She left, she left in April. And I was done teaching in May, and um, I don't even remember how long until he sold Phoenix. Phoenix did not last a long time because Phoenix was always in the shop. Um, <laughs> I think it was maybe June or July, and a new car came in. And, and But looking back, I realized I, I didn't want to get out of bed. I couldn't. I couldn't even... Couldn't even face the realities of of the tremendous loss, and so yeah, that that gift that was given to me was was very 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 healing, and and really that gift existed because we had this sort of long-standing running joke of, hey, when do you need a car? So yeah. I think it's really valuable to recognize that God uses um, uses everyday situations to work in this world in places that we didn't know even needed work. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I think, um, our, our culture 
is such that it's so easy to do things for ourselves and to hire out what we need or to, you know, like, I mean, we had, we had a period of time without, without a second car um, for a while when we were doing Dave Ramsey's financial piece. And we were like, we're doing this. We're gazelle-like. We just had one car, but like, it was really, really tough. And we thought, well, we'll just rent a car on the days when we really need it. And a friend said, well, my mom has two cars and she doesn't need both of them. You know, you could probably borrow one. We were like, are you serious? And she let us borrow her car for like, I think it was like five or six months. I mean, it was just an incredible gift. Um, but it, it, um, it changes you, you know, to receive mm -hmm. a gift like that. Um, and then to be able to, to go and, you know, open your house to people when they need a place to stay or, you know, like, um, I just think there's, there's so much, um, there's so many layers to that, how it creates community, how it, um, how it can humble us, you know, um, and, and show others that we, we do need help, you know, yeah. um, and that it's okay to ask for it. It's okay to receive it. Um, I think that's not, um, that's not always apparent <laughs> in the world we live in today. We like Amen. to have an image that we can do it all and we can do it all ourselves. Well, and I think we, we lose community. You know, I kind of alluded to the fact that we're struggling to find community in our culture right now. And some of that I, I think is directly related to social media, but I think some of it is related to the fact that our, we live far away from our families. Yeah. And so that, that family unit isn't there anymore. And also we don't depend on, I, you know, how many of us walk to the neighbors and say, can I have a cup of sugar or can I get an egg? Cause I'm not even sure my neighbor has sugar or an egg and that's probably on me for not, you know, communicating that, <laughs> but it's just, it's not in our, it's not in our socially appropriate, you know, social cultural norms anymore to have those sorts of tight knit communities. Yeah. And I think what we see in our country, the division that we feel, the loneliness that, that uh, I have my students deal with a great deal of depression and social anxiety. And I think a lot of that is attributable to the fact that they don't have community mm -hmm. and, and that they, God, I believe, created us for a deep need of community. And, yeah. I, you know, I once went to a talk and it talk, they talked about how God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit were together at the beginning mm -hmm. and that the, the, the three were in community from, from the very beginning. And I was like, oh. Oh, you know what? A, a light bulb moment to think if God needs community, then I can't possibly be better than God. Like <laughs> I must have that need, that deep need for community too. And and then it becomes vital that I share what I have because how can I be, you know, this friend, <laughs> like when we started sharing a car, we've maybe known each other a few months. He's now one of my closest friends. And we share a lot more than cars. We, you know, talk probably um, at least once a week. Um, and I think that a lot of that comes from the vulnerability that we each had to share with each other when we were going through, you know, times where we needed community. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, so something you talked about towards the end of the sermon was uh, you, you talked about the labels. Um, and I think you kind of blended between talking like you kind of threw some first century labels and some very present labels for us today. Um, and, and I don't think that you said this in the sermon, but you, you kind of, you said something about it in the, um, the notes that you sent me. Um, but I wrote down tables, not labels. And, mm. uh, and I like that connection that you were making between, um, sitting around a table um, and kind of setting aside our labels. Not that we don't have differences, not, you know, we're not trying to ignore all that, but just saying that, you know, being together is more important than that. And we need to find ways to, to work together, to live together, um, to, you know, to be kind to one another, to help one another. Um, and I think that's, you know, what so much of the first century church was about. It wasn't about those, you know, nitty gritty specifics that we can't really replicate today, or maybe don't need to replicate, but the fact that they were, they were together, that yes. they were experiencing community. They, um, they shared life together when there were needs, they figured out how to meet those needs together. You know, they didn't outsource that stuff. Um, right. And I think that, um, when, 
when you sit down and eat with somebody, they become immensely more human in that moment. Yes. And uh, all those labels, I mean, it's not like they disappear, but they lose their importance or their neon light shining pieces because no longer is this person sitting across from me who has this list of labels, but instead this person sitting across from me, we're sharing a meal together. Yeah. And, and we, we develop community because that's, um, I don't know. I, I think that's one of the things I love about communion is when you sit down and eat with somebody, it's really hard to be angry at them. Um, and it's really hard to hold on to like, I don't like you or I'm not friends with you or all those sorts of things that come because if we're at the table together, well, it's, it's very, it's very leveling. And, yeah. and now it's just you and me and we just get to talk and we don't have to have all those other things in the way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, there was something else you said. I don't remember how you said it cause I didn't write it down, but it was about being divine image bearers and like, who, who are we to think that we are a better image bearer, like, you know, that we better reflect the divine, like God put it in all of us. We yes. all have that. Um, that I so work with a lot of students who come to our group hurting. Um, some of them are, have kind of aged out of foster care. Some of them have come through drug rehab and, and met some of us somehow. Some of them have um, backgrounds that include felonies, mostly for drugs and alcohol, but um, you know, college kids can get in messes, <laughs> and, and, it, and in our world, it's really easy, um, and I, I hear sometimes people say, well, you know, why don't they just get a job, or why don't they just do this, or why don't they do that, and I don't, you know, I think if you would sit with my kids, and you would hear their stories, and you would go with them to, you know, their interviews, or you would help them find an apartment, <laughs> Um, you would find that the system makes it really difficult if you don't have the right look or the right, I mean, I could go rent an apartment. I have an apartment rented today, like, because I, I have good credit and I look the right way and I dress the right way and I, I have clean clothes and I've showered recently mm -hmm. and I don't have a felony on my record. And, um, you know, I have parent support. So even when I was a college student, you know, my parents could sign for me, um, you know, to be co-signers for, for renting. And a lot of my students don't have those privileges. They don't have, um, you know, they, they have a felony on their record and they don't have $1,800 in the bank and their credit maybe doesn't look very good. And, and for them, it takes weeks, sometimes months to rent an apartment. And I used to just think, dude, this is so easy. Just like you've got money, go rent an apartment. Yeah. And now that I've walked alongside them, I've sat at the table with them and eaten there. I realize that the system looks really different for them than it looks for me. Yeah. And opportunities that I have are not the opportunities that they have. And that really opened my eyes to helping them in a really different way. Um, it's not that they can't go get an apartment and go get a job and go get on. It's just that that it's harder than I thought and it's harder than it would be for me if I recognize this student sitting here regardless of their history regardless of their past regardless of whatever it is that they're struggling with they are an image bearer of God just like I am and and so then I want the best for them just like I want the best for me just like I want the best for my children and my you know um then I began to to think about how we can come together as community instead of thinking about separating myself. Okay, you have these things in your history and so we're apart. And, and I think it's really easy in our world to be like, okay, you're over there because yeah. you're homeless or you're, or you're, you know, you're a felon or you're a whatever fill in the label piece. Yeah. And, and when, we, when we go, wait a second, you're an image bearer of God, just like me. And we're on equal footing in the kingdom. Now, how I have a different relationship with this student, and I think, how can we come together to help you get housing? Or how can we come together to help you get a job? What do we need to do? What, what part of the system do I need to stand up to in order to help my, my fellow image bearer of God yeah. um, reach success? Yeah. Oh, that's beautiful. You know, I think... Um, 
some of what you were um, describing is really like as a white woman as well, I will say is like our white privilege of just, and you know, the people who say, well, why don't they just go get a job? Why don't they just do this? I think it's, um, it's, it's not that they're trying to be mean necessarily. It's just, it's a, a lack of information yes. um, and a blindness that, that we can have um, because of our privilege or that is our, our privilege to not have to think about such things. Yeah. Um, and so I wonder, like, do you, is this something that you have, um, like, do, do you have a sense of your role in this? Like, um, you know, I know some people, once they kind of wake up to this, um, feel a sense of obligation to help inform others or to, you know, kind of read up on this for yourself or like, is there, is there something that's been stirred in you to do in response to this um, realization? <laughs> yeah, um, there's a lot. So one, this is my class topic for Pepperdine this year at Harbor. So come oh, nice. and hear me speak. Um, I'm partnering with a, a friend of mine, Clay, who's actually, he, is, he has planted a church among the homeless in Trinidad, Colorado. Uh -huh. And so we are gonna come at the class from two different angles. He's going to talk about how we reach out to the homeless population after they've been on the streets a long time. And I'm going to talk about how, what, what pieces of the system make it difficult for kids who really shouldn't be homeless um, to, to get through. And, and we're going to kind of address some of the cultural pieces, um, the, the, the sort of degradation of the family and the family support. Because and a kid ages out of foster care, what are they to do? Because they turn 18 and if they've already left school, they're pretty much homeless at 18 in one day. I mean, there are some foster families that are working to, to not do that to them. And I think there's good people in this world who care about that. But a lot of kids are out and then they're lost. And where, the, where do they go when the dorms close for the holidays? Wow. Who knows? Who, who's going to make them Thanksgiving dinner who knows? There's so many pieces. And so, so yeah. So the first thing I would say is I absolutely feel compelled. Like every fiber in my being wants people to know about this. And I think that's why it shows up in my, like you give me any passage to preach and I somehow it's going to be this conversation a little bit. Um, it sort of gets old. My husband's like, you can't preach on that every week. And I'm like, well, honey, I, I don't know. The Bible's really clear about this. Um, but I think the, uh, so besides teaching at Harbor, um, I, this has become my ministry and, mm -hmm. and I did a lot of work with at-risk youth when I was doing youth ministry. And when the campus minister hired me on to be the, the associate minister, I kind of gave him a heads up and he was like, oh no, I know that you're going to find kids. And I was like, no, I, I don't know how it happens. God sends them, they, they show up. And he goes, yeah, I expect that. And so um, it's sort of become my personal ministry to find the kids falling through the cracks yeah. and do everything in my power um, to help them get on, get on a path that will lead them to be successful. And yeah. sometimes that means getting them housing. Sometimes it means helping them with food stamps. Sometimes it means teaching them how to get um, on the state Medicaid insurance. Uh -huh. Sometimes it means um, getting them enrolled in the community college. Sometimes it means going with them to their mental health appointments and advocating for them. Um, I've learned a ton in this. So I'm about two years into this in terms of campus ministry, but, but I, did, I did it for about 14 years in youth ministry. And so um, when I first started, just like every other person, I was like, dude, why can't your dad just stop using drugs? Like, let's get him in a rehab program, you know, or why can't your mom just like pay her rent? Like we'll help her so much, but come on, you know, or, or why can't your parent, whoever, guardian, whoever you're living with, go get a job, right? How hard can it be? Um, and, and then I started reading and I started walking alongside some people who were trying to get jobs. And I thought, it can't be that hard until I helped them do their resume and I, I helped them get ready for their interviews and I drove them to the interview and I would watch the way that employers would talk to them or treat them. And I was like, 
how dare they treat you like that? You're my friend. You know, like, because we had a relationship, all of a sudden my eyes were opened to this, like, system that was so different from my experiences. And, um, and so now I, I have become unfortunately, um, aware or educated about what trauma looks like for kids. And um, a lot of young women who suffered trauma get misdiagnosed as being bipolar or suffering with a combination of um, depression and anxiety. And, and in, in fact, it, most of those are really uh, trauma related and, not, and those are misdiagnoses. But our system, you know, if you're in the Medicaid system and you go into a mental health appointment, first of all, you don't get to see a real doctor. And secondly, they see you for 15 minutes to diagnose you. Wow. And then after that, they put you on medication. They don't offer you counseling. They don't offer you other options unless you wow. advocate. And so I have become, I've become more and more bold, I guess is the right word, more and more of a bulldog where I go to the appointments with my, my girls and I say, no, no, you didn't take a history. We're not taking this diagnosis until you spend a little more time with this kid. Yeah. Or I show up to, um, there's these things called art meetings where it's, um, the counselor and the the mental health people and the insurance kind of all come together. And um, thankfully, uh, if you are aggressive enough, I mean, you know, you advocate well enough, you go and show up to the art meeting. And and I've I've stood up and said, we have seen this cycle with this student like three times. So let's do something different this time because you guys are just going down the same path again and again. And it's it's not going to help because we've already seen it not help the last three times. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, I feel, I feel very compelled and I, I don't, I don't know. I have another word for it called maybe, but like, yeah, all of my inner being wants to do something to make this different and to speak up and to educate and to help others because there's, there's, um, I have a friend that's working with kids aging out of foster care in Southern California. I have a friend working with um, homeless teens in Texas, and, and, and I'm just starting to develop this network of other people who are doing similar work, and that we need so many more. Yeah. Wow. Um, I had no idea, first of all. And second, I mean, I just, I'm so impressed with what I hear as like God's gentle leading of you in this direction of the ministry of reconciliation through advocacy. I mean, I really, that's what I hear that your heart is to, for people to be reconciled to one another and to God and that the way that you in your corner of the world and work um, are engaging that is, is through advocacy because that's what's needed. That's so beautiful. You make it sound so good. <laughs> I'm super impressed with your description of me. <laughs> oh my goodness. That, well, that, um, that sounds like it can be pretty heartbreaking at times. Um, it's hard work and it, um, you know, you want every kid to make it. Yes. Every, every kid becomes mine you know, and I mean, sometimes I share them with their youth minister, with (laughs) other people that are helping um, them on this journey, but each success is, is amazing, but also sometimes I see kids get arrested, and I get phone calls from jail, and I think, oh, oh, this is so hard, you know, or you have a kid that doesn't pass their drug test, or a kid that chooses to stay home from school because of a variety of reasons. There's so many reasons, but you just think, kiddo, you gotta make it. And um, and so yeah, when 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 they're not doing well, it's it's heartbreaking and it's difficult. Um, I'm this is something that I'm learning and I'm really not very good at to like differentiate yourself, you know, because you become so invested in them doing well. Yes. Um, that, that when they don't do well, you, um, you struggle with, um, wanting to be like, wait, I'll come pick you up, you know, and you're like, no, I have to solid boundaries, kiddo, I need you to get on the bus, you know, <laughs> like, and then finding that balance between holding somebody's hand, um, because you have the ability to do so, 
and dragging somebody along who doesn't want to come. It's, yeah. it's really um, difficult to discern sometimes. Um, and it's difficult to not become emotionally invested mm-hmm. um, and to kind of sit back and go, not all my kids are going to make it. And I, I never want to acknowledge that reality yeah. because I'm desperate for all of them to have a relationship with Christ to build community with one another in our campus ministry, and most importantly, to to be successful so that they don't continue on the cycle. Because some of them, their parents, their grandparents, their great-grandparents lived in a poverty that I don't understand. Mm. And the only way to break that cycle is to bridge out and to have somebody who mentors you through developing the social cultural norms of a middle class instead of the norms that you grew up with, which are a poverty mindset. Mm-hmm. And that's, um, it's, it's difficult. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, we're, we're out of time, but I do <laughs> hope, I hope that, um, that you, you also have some resources um, for yourself um, so that you do not experience, or for when, I should say, for <laughs> when you are experiencing compassion fatigue um, and when this this difficult work is burning you out. Um, yeah, I'm immensely blessed. I have um, a fantastic husband who supports me even as he shakes his head and says, what are you doing? And I'm like, oh, but honey, I have a new homeless kid. <laughs> Um, and, and, um, and I have a great set of ministers, including this friend whose car, you know, we shared, um, and I can call, I can call them and say, I got a kid and I don't know what to do with them. Or, Hey, um, I need to find the name of a bail bondsman or man, I just need to talk because I'm so overwhelmed. And so God has richly blessed me through community. And I think that's maybe why I'm so passionate about providing the same for the students that I serve. Yes. Well, thank you so much for this important word and for, um, for taking some time away from all of this good work that you're doing to also um, preach a sermon for us. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah. We'll look forward to having you back on the podcast. Perfect. Thanks, Jessica. Thanks. If today you find yourself on the outside, without a seat at the table or a voice in the conversation, may you lean into the truth that you're always welcome in God's community. If you are one who wears the name minister, pastor, elder, shepherd, or are otherwise known as a faith leader, may you extend God's yes to those you might have said no to in the past. May you be emboldened and encouraged to honor the space that God has already created for all. Let's build bigger tables together. If something in you was stirred today, reach out. Hearing from you really does help to shape the future of this podcast. You'll have the greatest impact and opportunities for engagement by joining our Patreon community by clicking that Become a Patron button on our page, patreon.com slash jenhalechristie. And I would love for you to connect with me on Instagram or LinkedIn or Facebook at Jen Hale Christie. Lastly, you would really help others to connect with this work if you would subscribe and rate and review us on iTunes. That's our show for today. Thank you so much for listening and I will catch you next time.